0: Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powells, i Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. And I'm joined again today by my colleagues, Essie Marivara and Courtney West. And Happy New Year to everyone. I think this is our first one for 2022. Um, we, we thought we'd talk about flexibility today, flexibility at work. And um, we did promise not to talk about COVID-19, but it's kind of COVID-19 related in the sense that um, Dominique Perrette yesterday announced the end of the sort of vague work from home direction that we've been subject to since lockdown was lifted here in Sydney. Um, and you know really that signals the the, the workplaces going back to normal. Um, really what normal is now after after two years is the more interesting question. Um, certainly put it this way that there's no public health order now, you know, interfering or affecting with with workplace arrangements. One of the things we've seen over the last two years is that workplaces have changed as a result of COVID-19 quite radically um, for the better in, in a lot of cases. Um, certainly our workplace, where you know today, Courtney, your and Chatsman, I'm I'm here in in on the Central Coast office and, and this is at home and we're still able to do this. And we've even said that we prefer doing it remotely, like, like a lot of our work, you know, our firms changed. A lot of places have changed um, and and I think most importantly, I think that employers have found a way, have, have discovered ways of working remotely that have been really beneficial across the board as well as that employees have now set their expectations quite differently from how they were prior to COVID-19. And, um, you know, the guys will talk a little bit more about that specifically, but what I thought it might be useful to do with the, with the first podcast of the year was to actually look at What is the underlying law around flexibility? And what we're seeing is a lot of discussion around flexibility now. Um, A lot of employers either taking a hard line in terms of getting people back to the office or or being completely liberal and a lot of employees demanding things um, on the basis of laws that maybe aren't even aren't even there. So it might be just a, a, a useful reminder to actually go back and say, okay, what is the law around flexibility? And really I think there's two different parts of this. We're going to look at the flexible the, the ability for national system employees to make requests for um, flexible work arrangements, as well as that. Um, just I want to touch briefly on individual flexibility agreements, um, and and what they are and why they're quite different and in a different category, but quite often get confused. And we're also going to look a bit of the at a, a bit of the case law around that. But Courtney, what it, you did some reading on. Um, On this, you know, and also in preparation for a newsletter, sorry, that listeners may want to know is 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 going to be published around the same time as this this podcast goes live, which is on this subject. Um, So, what did you find when researching this around the changes um, generally to workplaces?
1: Yeah. So, in preparation for the newsletter, um, I reviewed some surveys conducted by the ABS. And there are a few interesting results. A recent survey actually showed that 41% of employees regularly worked from home in August, 2021. And in 2019, that was 32%. So pre-COVID, obviously. Um, And then in another study, there was a... mm, Sorry, they're not written well. And then in another ABS survey, which was the Household Impacts of COVID-19 survey, which was released in February last year, it showed that 42% of employed Australians wanted the amount of work from home to stay the same, um, and 14% actually wanted the amount
0: of work from home to increase. And everyone's talking about the Great Resignation, primarily in the states where you know million people, millions of people are resigning. I mean, I, I suppose this is actually. Making putting putting the thought in a lot of people's minds that whatever their employer happens to say, they you know it's been proven that they can work from home and they've done a, done a good job and and that's the way they want to work in the future. I think that's kind of kind of how it's going. But it's it's funny those stats don't. I thought they'd be more than that, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I was actually surprised. Like I think it was looking at it, a nine percent increase in work from home. Due to COVID. But like we discussed before the podcast, Brian, I guess a little bit of that is due to the fact that some industries actually just stopped working because they couldn't work from home. Yeah. Um, And
0: some will never be able to work from home. So I suppose when you look at it as a subset, like the subset of those where work from home is even feasible, the, the, the overall increase is actually probably a larger increase within that smaller subset. Yeah. Okay, so just for those interested, and it's been a long time since we've talked about it, what's the baseline? Who can actually legally request flexibility? And, and, and the thing is, too, we need to remind ourselves, work from home is just one type of flexibility. But but flexibility generally, what, what's, the, what's the underlying law of the Fair Work Act at the moment?
1: Yeah, so uh, the underlying law is Section 65 of the Fair Work Act, um, and it provides that to be entitled to request flexible work arrangements, an employee must fall into a number of different categories. So that includes a person who has a child that is school-aged or younger. And it's important to note that this includes all school-aged children, um, that's 17-year-olds, people in children in year 12, um, all all children, all ages. Um, Also includes a person who is a carer, who has a disability, who is over 55 years of age or is experiencing violence from a family member or is providing care or support to an immediate family or household member who is experiencing that kind of violence.
0: So it's a big portion of the workforce. And I think it's funny. It's always been kind of synonymous with family and carers' responsibilities, flexible work arrangements. And, and you know, obviously, not surprisingly, a large portion of flexible work arrangement requests are that the family and carers, you know, family responsibilities, kids, little kids. But it's still, you know, important to understand that that's just one of the categories that can allow this to, yeah. to arise.
1: So if you're making, if you're entitled to make that request, it's also important to note that your request for flexible arrangements must be in relation to those circumstances that make you eligible. You can't just request for flexible work because you satisfy that. You need to show that it's related to those circumstances.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise you sort of, yeah. And and look, I, I think there's, you know, certainly from my empirical experience, a large number of requests are put in that aren't really about that thing at all. Mm. Um, it, it's funny as well. The extension. I can't recall exactly when. Maybe 2016 when um, it was actually the school age or younger was changed. It was broadened um, so to, to include that the, the sort of the teenage and, and high school kids and stuff. So really, you can imagine how um, how many requests that could potentially be. Uh, so what's the sort of process? You know, either the request needs to be made in writing by the employee and what does that trigger? Um,
1: Yes, so that then triggers an obligation on the employer to respond to that employee's request in writing within 21 days of receiving the request. And that written response must state whether the employer is accepting or denying that request. And really importantly, if the employer is denying that request for flexible work arrangements, they need to provide reasonable business grounds for that decision, um, which obviously we're going to discuss in quite a lot of detail. Yeah, that. and
0: that's the nub of it always. Like everything, you know, it doesn't take long before um, the the legislation requires some test of reasonableness, <laughs> which is um, which is which is a difficult one. But I think the, the fundamental here is that that reasonableness is. It's obviously it's sort an of objective test, but it's applied to the subjective circumstances of the employer and the employee. So what may be reasonable um, for you know, a big company like you know Westpac to accommodate for one of its office workers um, is a completely different test for what a small hospitality business may be able to accommodate for um, for for a worker. Um, and and that's, that's the thing. So there's no, there's no fairness in this. Um, you know, there's no equity across the workforce. It's, it's really just about what is reasonably able to be accommodated. And, and those, um, those types of, of grounds for denials are, are things such as the arrangement's too expensive. Um, it may da- damage customer service. It may damage teamwork. It might cause difficulties for other employees. Um, There might be expenses involved in complying with work health safety, all of those types of things. But, you know, for instance, just a a denial, which was, if it was, for instance, a request to work from home, and we use that as an example, but as as I said, that's not the only type of flexibility request. Um, You know, a request to work from home, for example, um, one day a week so that, you know, someone can get to a childcare centre on time to pick up their child before it closes. it's going to take quite a bit um, to demonstrate that that's not a reasonable request in a lot of circumstances. Um, obviously, if, if that person works as a receptionist or they've got a customer-facing role or any of those things, but, but really it's, it's, it's a case of establishing what's reasonable business grounds. Just simply saying, oh, no, I don't, you know, as, as an employer, I don't like people working from home because I like to be able to watch them all day. That, that's, that's not a reasonable business ground, it, it needs to be set out in, in fairly detailed um, terms. I think another really important thing to factor into this is that it can sometimes depend a little bit on what other things, what other requests you have in place within the workplace. So for instance, if you've got a team of five people um, and then you've got an existing um, request for flexible work arrangements and that may in fact impact any subsequent request in terms of whether or not it's reasonable. So one of the things we often advise is that you know to put a time limit around flexible work arrangements um, and reassess them and, and it's perfectly valid to do that within the legislation so say so yes that's granted for this time until it'll be reassessed and you know the hypothetical example is for instance someone that Wants to leave early on a particular like let's say they want to start early and leave early on a particular day so that they can take their um, their teenager to a, like a ballet lesson or a music lesson or something that would be a, a grounds for a request and, and you know often that might be there might be no reasonable grounds to, to deny that request and it might even be something the employer wants to do you know because that's you know for the reasons we talk about there's a lot of reasons why flexibility, providing flexibility is really good commercially for a business. And we'll go on to that a bit more. But for instance, in that scenario, let's say you have a subsequent person that then wants to um, start early, finish late um, because of some caring arrangement for a three or four-year-old, you might say, okay, well, it it seems unfair to deny that request because somebody else is, is, you know, arguably um, doesn't need you could make some other arrangements um, and, and that's a tough one. You know, and from an employer's perspective, you certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation where you're saying no to a request because somebody else has got something that arguably they don't need quite as badly. Mm-hmm. So, so from that point of view, I think setting a time limit around it, um, a, you know, is a really useful thing for employers to do. Um, also really important to know that, these um the procedural requirements are really important that they're followed there's a number of reasons for that firstly because it's a civil penalty provision under the framework act and i think there was a case that um an, an old case nearly 10 years old that we've cited in the draft newsletter stanley and service to youth council incorporated 2014 where there was a breach of the procedure and was fined four thousand dollars even though it wasn't an intentional breach so, it's reason number one is that these things are civil penalty provisions. They're not just, you know, that, like a lot of employers that make the mistake of thinking that, you know, the financial obligations are the, are the only really serious ones. These things are in the Act, they're obligations under the Act that attract civil penalties. But um, the second reason that's really for, for, in, important to follow these procedures is from the employer's perspective, and that is that you need to have these things in writing as flexible work arrangements with the necessary time limits on it. Because if there is a reason for that flexible work arrangement to be revoked or changes need to be made, et cetera, then then you need it in writing as a flexible work arrangement. That The danger if you don't do that is it can then become actually that that accommodation that you make, if you make it informally, can then become incorporated into the employee's actual contract by custom and practice. So procedure is really, really, really important. Interested Essie, in a case that you looked at, because I'm I'm wanting to know, and I suppose everybody's wanting to know, how has the reasonableness test been affected by COVID-19? Has there been anything along those lines?
2: Oh yeah, there's a juicy one. <laughs>
0: <Not> <laughs> um, <always. laughs>
2: end of last year, it wasn't actually I should know that it's not actually based on the Fair Work Act legislation. It was an appeal based on the Public Service Act of Queensland, but it's still relevant because they discussed uh, that same test of um, reasonableness. Um, But it was a Queensland Industrial Relations Commission decision. um, And for those of you who want to look it up, it's here and state of Queensland um, from 2021. And you can find that in our newsletter as well. But essentially, uh, the Commission held that a HR advisor's request to work from home full time had been lawfully denied. Uh, despite the fact that the employee had argued that she had done really well while she was working from home during COVID and that was full-time and that she had been told that she had met and exceeded all leadership standards specifically so there shouldn't be an issue with her working full-time from home. But um, the employer, on the other hand, felt that because of her role in human resources, it was on occasion required that she should meet face-to-face with people and the industrial uh, commissioner thought that that was fair and reasonable. Um, And they referred to evidence such as the position description for the role and the fact that the employer already had flexible work policies in place, all of which said that in some cases, it's not appropriate for certain people in certain roles to work from home um and then they added that despite the performance of the employee during the pandemic being exemplary it was still fair to decide that that particular role required in-person attendance yeah
0: yeah so so really and i i'm know, look what I like to do—just draw conclusions from cases that aren't there at all. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> you know, that's a really bad habit. When when I, because I, I haven't actually read the case, but I guess what I'm I'm hearing from that is that, like, what just because somebody's worked really well at home during COVID, it doesn't make it unreasonable to say, no, well, actually, we need you back. Yeah. In the office. And, and, you know, particularly the the fact that it's on, on operational grounds, and look certainly with the HR, you know, we work with HR people all the time. And, you know, depending on the nature of the job, it could well be that, you know, HR people might need to do an exit interview with someone that's terminated, you know, you know on short notice, or they might need to collect keys, they might need to collect keys to the car, they might need to, you know, all of those types of things where on-site attendance is really important. Um, and, and yeah, so that's that. That is a really interesting case, and I suppose that is signalling that that really th- this idea, this you know, the Great Resignation idea, that um, suddenly you know, okay, the world has proved to itself that it can operate in completely different commercial circumstances than it used to be able to, and we're all remote, we're all you know, just one step closer to being characters in the Matrix where we're just plugged into a. I'm not sure what is it, the metaverse, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's yeah, you know, and I think that's right. And look, we've found like we've, you know, um, we've found that within our work circumstances. I mean I'm I'm astonished how well we did to manage for all that time when we were working from home. But it, it, it does it does sometimes have an, an effect even if you can uh, if even if you can do it from home and you can manage that there are impacts sometimes um, on, on things on on culture on On productivity um on on a lot of different things we were we were saying it's it's made had a big impact on kind of how the workplace energy works about sometimes urgency a lot of you know in 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 our experience again just this is an empirical experience based on talking to clients it tends to be the managers of people that have found it harder Mm -hmm. to work from home um you know and, and are generally keen for things to come back but certainly on the flip side I think uh, those employers that are just applying uh, the standard from 2017, 2018, 2019 and saying that nah, 100% back in the office, no flexibility, no accommodations, it, it's probably, you know, it's very likely that, that, that that's not going to be a, you're going to find workforce less willing um, which means that your pool of talent is going to reduce and and it's just not, not going to be consistent with the modern standards. So I think things have definitely shifted. But bearing in mind as well, flexibility is not just about um, work from home. It's about um, times of work um, and a whole, a whole range of different things. What else was interesting case-wise? Um, did you find anything else? There's
2: Well, there's a slightly older 2019... Uh, Victoria Police case, which yep. um, you know pre-COVID, not a work from home rate. situation. Yeah. Um, but it was um, a full bench decision, and it's provided quite a bit of guidance on the scope of the reasonable business grounds test. Yeah. Um, and again, you can find that in the newsletter if you want to have a link to it and have a read. Yeah. But oh, I've read.
0: That's a really interesting case because, mm-hmm. and that again is about again uh, one of the major requests. I won't let you go on, Essie. Sorry. <laughs> one of the major things, other than work from home. One of the most common requests, type of request, is is about becoming part-time, having been formally full-time and becoming part-time. And in a lot of industries, that makes it quite hard. And I think that's what um, the police found in that case. Is that right? Like he wanted to go from five days to four days or something?
2: That's right. But he didn't want to go part-time. He was suggesting to, to adjust his hours so that he'd do 10 hours per day. So it's instead of eight. Oh, okay. So he'd do longer days and he was already doing long days so he felt that it wouldn't actually be that drastic of a change i'm assuming okay um but he'd already he served for the victoria police for over 30 years he was 57 and so he was um, made that request on the basis that he was over 55 um and what and he as his reason he just said that he wanted to spend more time with his family he wanted to um ease into his retirement and he asked to test it out for a year so Again, he didn't ask it for, you know, an indefinite indefinite period. He wanted to test it for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was rejected on the grounds that, um, well, the Victoria police argued that overtime and recall to duty were in her, inherent requirements of his role. And because if we assume that he's working 10 hours a day, if he were to be working overtime on top of that or being recalled on that, say, on the Friday, on that fifth day, then that would be an OHS issue that he would it would take a toll on him um, and it wouldn't be safe for him. Um, But then they also claimed that it would be a financial burden um, and that it would create a floodgates issue um, so that everybody else would start putting in requests and importantly um, that lot I mean they, they argued a couple other things but these are the main ones and that last one they hadn't put to him within that 21 day period that Courtney mentioned they, they just included it as an argument for the legal proceedings. Um, and so this was before the Fair Work Commission and the relevant issue being uh, whether that was a reasonable business ground to reject his request, um, but the commission actually accepted that his proposed four-day-week arrangement would, um, sorry, no, they so they did actually acknowledge that it would impact his ability to work overtime, but they also said that it that that on its own was not a ground that would be strong enough to reject the entire request. Um, And they weren't satisfied that there was enough objective evidence um, to substantiate their claim that it would be this unreasonable financial burden on Victoria police to allow him to work those four days instead of five. And in relation to the floodgates, which I thought was interesting because this is what you were saying, Brian, um, is that um, the, They only started receiving more requests after he had put in his initial request. So it was only during the year leading up to this um, hearing that they had more requests. But at the time that he put in the the request, he was the first one. So from hmm. that perspective, on his case alone, that wasn't the case. They could have accommodated that at that time, maybe if he had been the one hundredth employee to ask for it, maybe they couldn't have, but at that time they could have. Yeah.
1: So it
0: wasn't. Yeah, so exactly what I was saying about you know where you've got the two two people with a similar sort of request and and you know it really is first come, best dressed in many ways because the reason why this is assessed subjectively at that time and you, you're exactly exactly right. How could you know? Floodgates is just not a reasonable business ground. Oh, there's going to be a you know there's going to be floodgates because each one needs to be assessed at the time. On the basis of which is why i think you know capping a time limit uh, on on them becomes really important
2: which also the employee themselves had actually offered um and that uh, the commission noted it also as to why it was so reasonable is that it was one year um and yeah yeah, they said that it wouldn't have had an adverse impact on the employer so they had no reasonable business grounds to reject it and Yeah. yeah
0: You get a sense with that, and and I remember at the time reading it, some of those institutions and those institutional cultures, there's a little bit of a, oh, no, don't be silly, mate, you've got to just do the same as everybody else. Mm. Had that been, uh, uh, um, you know, for instance, uh, a 30-something woman with a a newborn asking for an extra day, I think often HR people are like, oh, you know, we've got to do whatever we can to accommodate this. Because of that preconception that it's about family responsibilities, actually being 57 He'd been there for 30 having years. Request, Yeah, having a request to allow you to move towards retirement, that is one of the, you know, that's one of the, the categories that allows you to make a request. And, and so it triggers that. And I think that's a really important warning for employers. Don't think of flexible work arrangements as just being family responsibility arrangements, even though 99% of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the situation there, but um, no, that was a really interesting case and a really interesting reminder for everyone. I yeah, think I the other think. thing is, is, yeah, the other thing is um, really important is about work health and safety. Um, I think, uh, and you know, the case we've mentioned in in, in the newsletter, Hargraves and Telstra Corp, from twenty eleven, and it's ten years old, but it's still a really important. Um, important case in in establishing the fact that if you do allow someone to work from home, then the work health and safety, you know, ramifications of the work from home arrangements are the same as if they're working in the office. And in that case, the employee twice fell down the stairs in her home. Um, She was ordered compensation for medical treatment as well as weekly compensation. Um, as the you know, as on the basis of the fact that this is really a workplace accident, um, even though she's fallen down her own stairs. Um, so you know, one of the things we do, and I think most employers would have this in place already after COVID. But if you don't, give us a call. We we have um, you know a combination of documents. A work from home policy is first of all really really important thing to implement, and secondly some work health and safety um, checklists that accompany the policy that you, you really your employers need to ensure that employees have um, safe accommodations in their home, um, you know, and this even goes as far as, you know, the ergonomics of furniture, um, the, the height of people's monitors and um, the safety of their electrical equipment, all of those things are considerations that, that need to be made exactly as if you're making them, if you know, if you were refitting an office or if you were considering the safety of your office environment. Um, it's exactly the same, so that's an important case there. Now, individual flexibility arrangements are a really important thing that I, I think we should address as well. Um, quite a different thing from a from a flexible work request. Uh, an IFA is an agreement made under under a modern award, so these only apply to modern award employees. The individual flexi- flexibility arrangement is made under the award, if it's necessary to vary award terms to accommodate flexibility. And and there's a there's a procedure in how that, that comes about. But I think, you know, the critical distinction is this that is, let's say you have someone working under the clerks private sector award that makes a request for flexible work arrangements to, you know, finish work on Friday to go and pick up their kid from school, classic one. Um, And what they say they're going to do is they're therefore going to work three hours on Sunday afternoon to to make up the deficit. Now, strictly in accordance with the award, that would become a penalty rate situation. So it's a good example of where you then need an IFA to vary both probably the minimum engagement period and the penalty rate clause that would apply to that Sunday work. Now the employees decided to do it because they want to do it for flexibility reasons. So, so you're then allowed to use the IFA for that purpose, and there's a, you know, that's a that's an obvious one, but there's quite a lot of examples where you've got, for instance, someone might want to come to work for an hour um, before another job, for instance, and then work two hours at the end of the day. Uh, again, is there a ward covered, and there's like a minimum engagement of three hours? That can only be accommodated with an uh, individual flexibility arrangements, So they, they often may not even be connected with a request for flexible work arrangements, but, but those exist as a separate subset. But it's just important for employers to bear that in mind that there may be sometimes a requirement to actively vary award conditions to, to accommodate these requests. Pros and cons. I mean, I think we've all seen it. Um, you know, the, the the main one in terms of, you know, the working from home request is um, you can, over time, uh, provide a a saving in overhead, in effect rent. And we've seen this since since COVID. We've seen this musical chairs, (laughs) of people downsizing. Um, You know, we've done it or we didn't exactly do it because we have opened a second office at the same time. But, you know, a lot of places have realized that they can actually manage just as well if they've got people working three days Two days, then you know, combination of that and kind of hot desking and, and, and some of those things has meant that there can be real savings savings there. Uh, I actually think the most important pro when it comes to accommodating flexibility, um, and it's the same as the the, the pro of uh, embracing diversity, is that is you get access to a much wider pool of employees. If you're willing to be flexible, um, it's something that you can provide for them. In many cases, and we talked, I can't, what was a podcast I see when we were talking about young people? I think that was with Lizzie. Less, yeah, with Lizzie recruitment. We, we were talking about the fact that young people are less motivated by actual salary number mm-hmm. than they used yeah. to be in yeah. history. Um, and you know, I think that what we're going to find over time is that things like this, these types of accommodations become. Of real value to people in a way that that sometimes money can't match. So um, there, there's there's that as well. You know there's that that pool of people. Um, on the other hand, uh, it can sometimes be harder to engage uh, with people um, productively. Like when you've got a, a, a you know a team of people that strictly do nine to five thirty in this one location. Um, Things are pretty easy, so often you need to get creative and often some employers have found have struggled to find that extra extra level of creativity that allows them to engage. And as, as I just said to you guys, like my personal experience was, you know, in terms of how do we maintain the, the energy and the enthusiasm that you need um, to do the type of work we do under high pressure. Um, and that can be quite hard, you know, when you, when you're sort of just sitting in front of a screen and you know we've got a, a chat and we've got Teams meetings, but it's just not quite the same, you know. And then you've got that basket of like wet washing, staring at you, wanting to go out on the on the clothesline, think go stuff, and, you know. <laughs> which again is is a great part of flexibility, but yeah, you know, again that's the kind of that, that, that's the kind of thing it, it can affect productivity. And I think it, it would be foolish um, to just pretend that it has no impact on anybody's productivity. Often you're more productive um, in some ways, um, because you're not distracted by by situations. But I think there's also losses there from work. But I think that's pretty much it. I think we've covered everything. Was there anything else that we looked at that that you guys wanted to add?
1: There was just one thing I thought we'd touch on. um, In addition, under Section 65, the request for part-time work to assist in the care of a child? Oh,
0: yeah, so, yeah, following following from parental leave or...? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. so... Yeah.
0: Um, slightly, different, slightly different Yeah,
1: so it's yeah. not quite the same, but an employee who has a responsibility to care for a child and is returning to work after taking leave in relation to the birth or adoption of that child may request to work part-time to allow them to care for that child. Um, So just another thing for employers to be mindful of when it comes to requests for flexibility, such as going to part-time work.
0: Yeah, yeah, great, great, awesome. All right, the good, the bad, and the ugly.
1: What do we find?
0: Who wants to go first?
2: (laughs) Uh, I'll go. I'm happy to. Yeah. Um. I mean, this is definitely this is my good, but it is it's more like an interesting. And apparently this happened last year, but I actually I, I missed it. Um, but Portugal uh, passed new laws to regulate working from home. Ah, yeah. So along with all the other European countries who are introducing this sort of right to disconnect, but they've gone a bit of a different route. So um,
0: you're busting out Portuguese law, right? You're going to you intimidate
2: I, I have to represent the <laughs> European side of this firm. Yeah, almost half Fair of enough. us. Um, so- right so they passed the law it only applies to to smaller companies sorry sorry larger companies specifically those with more than 10 employees but um employees won't be able to won't be allowed to contact employees outside of business hours um unless there's essentially an emergency and this is specifically the term that they adopted instead of the right to disconnect so people didn't want that the right to switch off your phones, they actually, they would rather just like, don't contact me. Um, But, uh, and then on top of that, employers are also forbidden from using any kind of software that would uh, track what their workers do. So that kind of monitoring software that's forbidden. Um, But employees do have to attend the office once every two months. So six times in a year, which was pretty reasonable. Um, and the law also just faced a bit of criticism, which is why I figured it's not it's not entirely good. I'll wait to hear what Portugal says in a couple of months time after they've tested it out. But employers are complaining that it's they haven't provided enough detail on how how this is meant to work in practice. And then employees are feeling that it's also that's too general. Um, some feel that there should be more of a common sense approach. And that they don't always necessarily mind being contacted out of hours. So the fact that it would now be unlawful to have their employer contact them about work after hours seems odd yeah. to some. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. I definitely. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm. If uh, you can you see some downsides, like if you know, if I scheduled a meeting for you, Essie, with a notoriously difficult client for nine a.m. on Friday morning. And it was like 5.31 on Thursday afternoon. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you rather know? Yeah. <laughs> rather than just, just turning up and, you know, so I, I don't know. I guess that's an extreme example. Yes.
2: But and also it's, it's only to regulate work from home. So it's not necessarily every scenario.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And but also just... um, they've included that parents who have children under the age of eight, they have the right to work from home, but otherwise it's just to regulate those who do. Oh.
0: Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: What was your good, Courtney? Yes. Um, so my good is hot off the press. Um, Amazon Flex drivers in New South Wales are going to have their pay conditions regulated and, um, by a state industrial instrument. So that means they're um, they're getting a pay rise from, I think it's currently $27 an hour and it's going to increase. They're estimating by 2025, it will be $37.80. I don't know why they've given the quote for 2025, but that's what we have. There you go.
0: Just going back to Portugal oh yes something sorry something else has occurred to me did you say that the workers can't be monitored
2: yeah so you know how there's while they're um, working from
0: home.
2: yeah well they can they can't use that monitor like that software that people use oh, yeah. to track what people do on their okay. computers while they're working so like
0: apple can do it and microsoft can do it and google can oh. do it and facebook can do it but not the employer <laughs> not the person that's paying them
2: don't be ridiculous yeah. brian <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a bad one. I don't necessarily see what the point in all this monitoring yeah. software uh, is. Trust your employees if you don't get rid of them. Well, I think so. legally, lawfully, yeah. you know, yeah, all yeah, the yeah. process uh, guys.
0: Hundred percent, hundred percent. I agree with you. You know, trust is such an important part of the employment relationship. If it's not there, you've mm. got bigger problems than just monitoring. You know, hundred percent agree. Yeah. My good, uh, controversial and too big to really talk about, but I just wanted to note the two High Court decisions last week about Excellent. the independent contractor issue. Those were the CFMEU and um, Personnel Contracting Proprietary Limited, and um, ZG Operations Australia and JAMSEC. Now, I've heard a lot of commentary and, and very similar to the High Court decision in Rosado around casuals. A lot of commentary, a lot of commentators in particular saying this is a disaster, it's terrible. Um, in a nutshell, both appeals were upheld, meaning that in in one instance, um, two truck drivers that were ha- that had been held by the full federal court to be employees, that was overturned, and they were they were established to be contractors. And in personal contracting, um, so, some employees that had been held to be contractors by the full court were actually held to be employees. So, so sort of in terms of the result, they went both ways, but. Um, there was some commentary that um, was negative about the cases on the grounds that it's, you know, arguably restored primacy to the contractual terms rather than the substantive arrangement. Um, and it's not the same as, but it's it's similar to the, the casual cases um, in, in Rosado um, in the High Court. Now, why I think it's good, because I don't have a political opinion one way or the other about it, And I've gone on the record many, many times um, with with my belief to clients that often it's just preferable to to treat your employees as if in doubt, employ them, so much easier. And I, I, you know, many of our clients have have had that advice from me. Um, However, what I like about it is is just merely the fact that the High Court has provided some certainty to a to a, a particular area of law that lacked certainty and, and was therefore commercially quite volatile for the, for the business and the employment community. Um, that being said, again, you know, without getting into the separation of powers too much, um, if we don't like the decision, then great. I think it's time for legislation to um, make law. Um, and again, I've gone on the record many times. I wrote an article years ago Praising the Californian um, uh, legislation around this issue, which provides a lot more certainty on who is an em- employee, who's a contract, who's a contractor. We have
1: um, done a podcast on it as well. If people,
0: we have we've done many, many many podcasts on it, um, and we decided not to do a to do one on this because we have probably um, flooded the engine on on that particular <laughs> point. But I do think certainty is great. And I think this is good certainty. and I think now it's time for the for the legislature to um to step into gear. So where are we up? to? That's good is he bad?
2: My bad is also my ugly because I'm cheating. Um, okay. But it was to do with a fair work commission decision on an unfair dismissal, where an unvaccinated aged care worker lodged a claim out of time. And as we know, when you make an application out of time, um, being over that twenty one day, period post-termination, um, then you need to prove that there were exceptional circumna- circumstances that caused the delay to your application.
0: Yeah, very and, high bar as well. Oh, yeah. You know, generally speaking, yeah.
2: Um, and in this case, the HK worker put in the application that there was a theft in his home right around the time that he was his position was terminated. But the Fair Work Commission didn't accept that. that. They said that the timeline suggested that he would have still had time to put in an application within that 21 days. Um, And then as an alternative explanation, um, the employee had said that he found biased information on the Fair Work Commission's website about circumstances in which uh, employers can mandate their workers to get vaccinations. And apparently that put him off from applying and he was telling the Fair Work Commission this as a reason to which I thought was kind of I honestly I found it a little bit funny um, that you would willingly go up to the Fair Work Commission and say, I thought you were biased and therefore I didn't want to put in an application. Um, Not too surprisingly, the Fair Work Commission determined that this didn't actually constitute an exceptional circumstance. He had sufficient time and they dismissed the claim. But um, the reason why I put this in my ugly too, because after finding it a little bit funny, I kind of thought that, you know, it's a bit sad that we've gotten to this point in the pandemic where people are genuinely put off from pursuing their rights because they're so distrustful of an institution that just mentions laws surrounding mandatory vaccines in the workplace. Yeah, And um, I think we've spoken about it on the podcast before too, that there's been a lot of attempts to kind of muddy the waters on whether or not it's lawful to require that or whether the public health orders are lawful. And so it's just a shame to see that that's the consequence.
0: Yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised how unequivocal the courts and the tribunals have been about vaccines. And I think, although I don't really have a huge amount of sympathy for the, for the sort of anti-vax movement, I think it's not surprising that kind of those people that are really strongly anti-vax and some of them are kind of, you know, tends to overlap a bit with conspiracy type theory it's probably not helpful that the courts have come down in such a one-sided way. Either <laughs> way. It, it just it just adds fuel to the fire, doesn't it? But yeah, that is that's a that was I, I read that. I think you pointed that in my direction, and that, that was an an awkward situation, yeah. it wasn't it? That, that case. And I love the whole oh, there was a theft. Like it sounds a like little dog ate my homework. You know, someone. I, I was halfway through filling out the form F two, and someone came and stole it. Uh, <laughs> Um, Yeah, I mean, that that, that is, you know, the the out of time thing, um, the establishment of exceptional circumstances. I think Emily talked about it on one of our pods um, where there really was an exceptional circumstance. It's quite a high bar bar and you you have to demonstrate actually why that made you late. It's not just, okay, I've had this unbelievably exceptionally difficult thing. happened to me and therefore I didn't I just didn't think about doing it mm-hmm. it, it needs to be causative the exceptional circumstances need to cause the delay yeah. um and and you know often they they don't The out of time they don't get up unfortunately for the unfortunately for the applicant yeah bad
1: Courtney my bad Courtney is the the star um had oh, 13 million in underpayments to more than two thousand salaried employees over the past six years um basically it was due to a failure to, to adequately compensate them for overtime um and penalty rates yeah
0: that was my bad as well oh, just bad. that's a good bad yeah <laughs> a good bad. and and again um uh, another scenario, an underpayment scenario, which involves vulnerable employees and a very large, very wealthy organisation, yeah. um, and and again another one that involves failure, you know, failure to actually acknowledge those award conditions when they applied, you know, presumably to salaried employees, and and I just think that the, the big inner town needs to do a bit better. It's time. Oh, you know. definitely. Um, and, you know, I, as I say, I have more, I have stronger sympathies for the for the SMEs and the small businesses that get it wrong. Um, I, I just, I think that's fair enough, but there's just been such a large spate of, of big corporate. That have the um, resources. Getting, get, getting this wrong. They have the resources to, to, to know better. They, they really do. So Essie cheated, so she doesn't have an
1: ugly. Oh,
0: do you have an ugly? I
1: do. I do have an ugly. Um, So it was... Again, related to an unfair dismissal, that's a a common one. Um, Basically, it was regarding an employee of the Australian Council of Trade Union, so the ACTU. They dismissed a call centre employee uh, due to a number of posts he'd made on his personal Facebook account that they held were completely inconsistent with the ACTU's values and policies. So a number of different posts around... Uh, protests for the vaccination mandates and he made a few posts about uh, violence that had happened against police officers and things like that. So he was dismissed. Um, The Fair Work Commission found that the ACTU had failed to give him the proper opportunity to respond to the valid reasons for dismissal. So his Facebook posts were a valid reason. Um, And then in the end they dismissed his application because they said... Even if he did have an opportunity, an adequate opportunity to respond, it's very unlikely that they would have reached a different outcome anyway. Um, it's just a messy situation. That's all. Like to see surprisingly
2: common. Yeah,
1: just to get the process a little bit wrong. Um, his posts were very ugly. If you want to read the case, it's, just,
0: it's all just a little, a little messy. I think that the social media gone wrong at work is always ugly and sad mm. it just shouldn't happen we should we should know better should we? yeah yeah but, um,
2: but brian's ugly
0: my ugly i am ugly
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that will
2: never stop being funny i will make the same joke <laughs> on this podcast <laughs>
0: all right my ugly is really ugly Ooh. it's the religious discrimination bill. i think U- ugly intentions ugly drafting ugly law ugly interaction with constitutional issues very ugly outcome for the coalition
1: my... just being
0: just being pulled from um from from parliament um ugly
1: my good was almost that it got scrapped and then I thought yeah. maybe I shouldn't say that on the podcast
0: yeah. but yeah. you said and it anyway yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't good. I mean, the the, the political the, the intentions weren't good. The socio intent part of it was was ugly. But it was just crazy. as a, just as lawyers, and we discussed this because we were talking about doing a pod, but the way it all unfolded was pretty ugly. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thanks for listening again. If you made it this far, um, we are on uh, LinkedIn. And, um, and PCC Lawyers is on Twitter and Facebook. So um, get in touch, or just if you've got a legal problem, just call the office, because if there's anything interesting in this podcast you want to talk more about, we're always available. Um, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. See ya Bye.